Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Welcome to episode 106 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast given a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapse horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, mostly a podcaster, but sometimes a sticky filmmaker. And joining us tonight, he is the co-host of the Arrow Video Podcast and also special effects guy on Possessor, Girl on the Third Floor, Color Out of Space, Lords of Chaos. You know him, you love him, it's Dan Martin. Dan, hello. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you for doing this. Uh, also, it's nice to see another human face. Obviously, we've been <laughs> doing loads of these um, in this kind of way, because obviously we're doing this over Zoom tonight, but we never really uh, turn the video on. So it is, so it is, it is nice to, no offense, Andy, your face was lovely, but it is, uh, it is nice to see another face as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I do appreciate that myself, to be honest, Mitch, because uh, there's really only two faces that I see over Zoom. One of them is my brother and the other is you. <laughs> Um, and I see you with more regularity than I see my family. <laughs> you can't so forget Dan, your own face crying in a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dan, how you been? How is all of this treating you? How you getting on? Uh, it's super fucking weird. My industry is shut down. If it wasn't for the Arrow podcast, I'd be climbing the fucking walls. But uh, <laughs> as it is, I can continue to justify my obsessive compulsive film consumption as a, as a work activity. <laughs> always good. Always good. Uh, speaking of weird film consumption, yeah, uh, yeah. So um, I gotta say, uh, you, you sent us a shortlist. I would have quite happily done any of them, but um, mm-hmm. when we were running through them, and I hadn't seen this before in a shocking twist, but I kind of when I read through the list, I said, Dandy, I was like, I really like the sound of murder, Rob. <laughs> um, so you are taking us back to 1984 uh, tonight with Lucio Fulci's Murder Rock. Why this one? Tell us a little bit about it. Um, well, it's it's a weird one because it's like Fulci did a lot of stuff, and some of his stuff, especially mm-hmm. within like genre enthusiasts, is is very well known, uh, and some of it less so. But I feel that this is is like really on the cusp of underappreciated, like because some of his stuff isn't well known because it's shit. <laughs> yeah, uh, yes. And then obviously huh. some of his stuff is incredible, and this one, like whether you like it or not, I, I I'm not. I wouldn't put money on you both loving it, but I I love it. Uh, I think it's a very particular, like a snapshot of how Italians viewed America at the time. Um, and it's like, it's like, you know, when a friend does a bad accent, like a bad impression of an accent, it's mm-hmm. that, but it's a whole film of Lucio doing a bad American accent. How did you come across this in the first instance? Um, I knew you were going to ask this and I don't really have an answer. Like once when I was in my mid teens, like a crazy Scottish man whose name was Sandy and who had a flat full of parakeets and porn um, (laughs) that I used to buy weed off, uh, introduced me to Italian horror. I must have been like 15, 14, 15. And uh, I'd, I'd just go up to his like apartment to buy like a little bit of weed every now and then. And he was like, oh, do you like horror movies? And I was like, well, yeah, fuck it, yeah, I like horror movies. And he's like, oh, have you seen this? It's called Tenebrae. 
And I'd, Ooh, okay. I'd never seen an Italian horror film at this point. And obviously I was okay. immediately fucking sold. And so then I used to buy a little bit of weed and a couple of bootleg tapes off him. And that became <laughs> like the rest of my teenage years until I discovered Camden and the Psychotronic Video Store uh, and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, Murder Rock was one of the ones I got off him. So I would have watched it in a sort of a fog of thick blue smoke in my room at my parents' house with a window open pretending I was being a... A productive young member of society. <laughs> um, I've been in that. I've been in that exact same situation. Uh, Andy, what about you? I'm guessing this is one that you've seen a couple of times. Yeah, Mitch, I've seen it plenty of times, but uh, actually, I didn't actually I didn't see it for the first time until maybe four years ago. Okay. So uh, kind of new to me. I, I'm obviously a massive Filchy fan. We've discussed this before, but this was one of the ones that kind of passed me by. I remember someone years and years ago kind of described it to me as Fulci does fame. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that sounds terrible. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, when I kind of came to watch it down the line, uh, uh, there's a lot more to it than just Fulci does fame because there's also Fulci does flash dance. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say it's, it's more flash dance than fame as well. But it's, yeah, it's a uh, weird Dan, before, treat. <laughs> uh, Dan, before we kick off, uh, we got to ask you to do one thing. You may know what's coming. I know what's uh, coming. Andy, you got 30 seconds on the clock there? Of course, Mitchell, yes. Okay. Uh, Dan, I'm going to count you in. Uh, you cool. look ready. You I'm look ready. Dan, you, I'm ready. you're holding your mic as if this is a karaoke moment. <laughs> I, you know what? You're holding that microphone like it's a TED Talk, and in a way, it kind of is. Right. I'm ready. Go. I'm ready. Three, two, one, go. Eschewing his traditional role as a splatter vendor, Italian favourite Lucio Fulci attempts to cash in on the success of smash hit Flashdance by blending its exciting commercial disco essence with Italy's cash cow de jour, the giallo. Murder Rock sees a bunch of athletic, unitard-wearing students dispatched at the hands of a genre standard, the black-gloved killer. What follows is a mix of police procedural and cynical indictment of youth, all followed by that other giallo staple, a twist ending pulled straight out of the director's arse. <laughs> And with time remaining. Uh, Dan, i got to tell you, that's one of the best ones of those that we've had in a long time. Right. I think that we should just jump straight into this because this is possibly the quickest that I have ever been sold on um, <laughs> a film that we've done for this as we open on this kind of like cityscape flanked by this ABBA meets Billy Joel striding musical. Oh my God, like, yeah. Home. Well, the the whole film is like a weird, like sort of melting pot of Italian heavyweights and people not from Italy who have done work on like Italian successes. Mm-hmm. So obviously, yeah. like the first thing that smacks you in the face is Keith Emerson's score, mm-hmm. you know. And yeah. Keith Emerson had done Inferno for Argento a couple of years earlier, but he's not a disco like or synth guy. He's a prog rock guy with classical leanings. He's not the right choice for this it's a terrible soundtrack and yet it's a fucking wonderful soundtrack there's that one that one song that keeps playing the entire way through the film paranoia's um, coming for you that's the, the, one. the very same the very same uh, that reaches a certain point in the film where you're like mix it up for christ's sake it's, and then at the end there's like five or six songs credited in the, like the end credits and i was like I don't know. I, I couldn't tell you a single other song in this film except for that one. <laughs> well, the very yeah. the very first song's unique. Paranoia Comings for You debuts in the second musical number, and then that becomes the incidental score for the rest of the fucking picture. So it's That's not so just weird. it's not just a film 
scored by Keith Emerson. It's a world scored by Keith Emerson. <laughs> diegetic and non-diegetic alike. Every fucking note you hear in this film is, is Keith Emerson. Yeah, I think that uh, we, we, you do hit a point of diminishing returns in that song about halfway through the film. <laughs> <laughs> There's, you, it's like a Monty Python gag, though. Like, by, you, like, you're like, oh, for fuck's sake. And then like three, four repeats later, you're like, ha ha, fucking hell. <laughs> We're still going. <laughs> Although kind of like I did start greeting it like an old friend after a while. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Our story begins and uh, spends much of its time in the Arts for Living Center. Yes, sure. appropriately titled. Uh, yeah, where we uh, hurtle straight into another musical number. Uh, this time flanked by swathes of um, aerobics enthusiasts. So many pop socks, so many groins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And moving away from his obsession with eyes and focusing more on the posterior. Yes, there's later on. There's a musical number that r contains a dance move that uh, myself and the various friends I have inflicted this on over the years yeah. have described as dispersing a fart. Which <laughs> <Yeah>. is <laughs> well, this this kind of opening number here, like this is um, long. Yeah, and and it follows <laughs> a long opening number from the credits as well. So you've got like. Almost ten minutes of music at the top of this film. <laughs> uh -huh. I, 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 remember, I remember checking the runtime after like eight minutes, being like, huh, "This is a choice." <laughs> <laughs> um, also, in this sequence where they're where they're actually dancing to the song, it drives me fucking mental that the instructor <laughs> uh, Margie isn't counting on the beat. Yeah, she's well, but none of them are dancing on the beat either, so you can't blame her. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they do say moments later that the dance could do with some perfecting before so, it's ready to it, it needs, roll out. It needs some perfecting. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, this this was the uh, this is the verdict passed down by all the shadowy figures who are watching it on a network of screens. Yeah, in, <laughs> like including they were night watchmen in a shopping center, including Candice's boyfriend, the hilariously named Dick. Dick and Willie, two of my favourite uh, names. <laughs> just... Dick, like, Willie, and Bob. It's like they've never heard an American name, but they're, they're uh, going to have yeah, a good yeah. guess. Yeah. We, well, that's it. We cut up to the to the like this like atrium viewing atrium, where uh, where people are watching the dancers from like a secret space, and then they have a dialogue that tells us that there's an opportunity coming up that only three of the students will uh, will be able to qualify for. Which is yes. immediately like a like a motive for all of them. They're now all yeah. potential suspects. Yeah, this 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 show has been moved up two weeks and apparently kind of like economized way down because presumably yeah. <laughs> before it was like two weeks two weeks away and uh, they could the, all do it. They could all do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And now it's very very immediate and only three of them can. <laughs> I have to say, in the early running, a character that I'm really drawn to, who I feel that we don't get enough time with, is Bob the DJ. I love Bob. Bob only did two. Yeah. That actor only ever did two movies. This is one of them. <laughs> um, I think it's funny that Bob gets kind of hurried into the limelight in the third act. Like, he, <laughs> like he's. I think that there's kind of like, ah, remember this guy? Maybe he's the killer. Well, we all do remember him because he looks like an albino Cillian Murphy. Wow, he does. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going. I'm not going to say that. That's what was on the tip of my tongue. I was like, that guy reminds me of something. It wasn't an albino Cillian Murphy. I can't unring that bell. Now you've said it. Um, but yeah, we also meet a couple. A couple of the other gymnasts here, including Jill. 
You keep saying gymnast, Mitch. These people are dancers. Sorry. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. 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 Uh, yeah, I'm a, doing a disservice there. It's a. It's a middle ground. I mean, I. I would go so far as to say to call a gymnast a dancer would be a disservice. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's fair, actually. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I was sticking up for gymnasts. You like dick are. You are attributing oh, to them like Dick <laughs> Excuse is. Excuse me, sir. <laughs> I beg your pardon. <laughs> Punching above their weight by calling themselves gymnasts. Uh, yeah, that's reasonable. Uh, can, I, can I just can I try and uh, can I try and pick apart the politics of what's going on here? So, like, so we have Marge, who is the instructor, who is kind of like oversee, kind of doing the immediate kind of hands-on overseeing of this routine at the start of this. Yeah. Sure, played by Jaretta Jaretta from Demons. Yeah. Yes. And am I right in saying that Candice is kind of like above her on the dance slash aerobics organization chart? She's Correct. kind of usurped her. She's stepped above her. Yeah, that's kind of what I, I, I feel like. I'm, uh, there's been a recent kind of transfer of power. Yeah. <laughs> that's that, that's what I figured. That's good. So it's almost time to close the school as this wraps up, and uh, we have a couple, both of whose names have escaped me right now. Susan, Dick, and Sue. Uh, no, uh, Willie and Sue. <laughs> Willie and Sue. Thank it's not you. Dick. It's Willie. How could I get those two confused? Oh, for <laughs> but but you, <laughs> Dan, kind of could fucking be... worms here. Dan, you could be forgiven for, for doing that because it seems as the film progresses that Dick is fucking everybody. Oh yeah, Dick is literally a Dicksmith. <laughs> also just like a baffling choice and a baffling way to play a womanizer, I think. Yeah, I mean, he's so Dick is played by Claudio Casanelli. He did this, he did Suspected Death of a Minor, he did Kill a Cop, which I talked about on the Arrow podcast recently. Um, he also did Hands of Steel, which is an amazing, like, bad Mad Max ripoff, Italian Mad Max ripoff. But he's like, if you had to make a movie where the main guy had to be super handsome, but also definitely worked in an office. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's a call. That's his whole um... thing. <laughs> Yeah, we have a couple kind of like undercover of dark kind of going at it in the girls' bathroom here. Uh, yeah, yeah. Willie, and, yeah but, Willie and Sue, as you say. Yeah. We can, we learn that she's definitely American because she takes a Mickey Mouse doll out of her locker and kisses it. <laughs> and that's definitely what Americans do. But normally mm. before bed, so it's unusual as well. Yeah, very uh, true. Yeah. But um, the, the whole dance school is this like peculiar sci-fi space with like a cold automaton voice over the speakers saying that it's going to close in 15 minutes and then the lights are pulsing to let everyone know they need to leave the building but that's never addressed at any other point <laughs> in the movie what it does do and it, and this is repeated later on is it kind of apes the power outage sequence in inferno which you know obviously emerson was involved in and, and Fulci always treading on the heels of argento to some extent like that amazing sequence where the music is dying on the record player and then coming back up and the lights are kept going down. Mm. And it allows for that kind of like jump cut of proximity for the killer to get closer and closer mm -hmm. to the uh, to the, the potential victim. So it's a yeah, it's a nice. Um, the, the thing is, as camp and stupid as this movie is, there are loads of places throughout where you can see that Fulci actually knows what the fuck he's doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So the guy takes off, uh, Willie takes off for fear of being kind of caught, and uh, Sue goes for a shower. We get our first look at the killer and the killer's, well, not the first look at the killer, I guess, but we get our first appearance of the killer here, and also our first look at his M.O. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's sort of like a, like a pound shop version of the killer from Belly of the Black Tarantula, where like they can't afford the poison to go on the needle, so they just make sure they go in the heart, which conveniently for Lucio means it goes in through her breast every time. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, every mm -hmm. single time. Uh, that's something that hasn't quite vanished in this film, although I would say that this is 
certainly at this point in his career, coming a couple of films after New York Ripper and Manhattan Baby, this is certainly softer than yeah. most other things, but he still hasn't lost that kind of leady gaze. <laughs> yeah, I'd say it's one of the it's one of the more male gazey filches because it doesn't have all the like the gore to pull up the the excitement of its potential audience. It relies mm. more on these sort of like, you know, nubile young things dancing around and shaking it and then ultimately being sacrificed for the audience's uh, enjoyment. So it is quite uh, like a sort of a slice of its time as far as gender politics go. I have a question, and I may have misheard, um, that's not out of the question by any stretch of the imagination, but um, see when we rejoin this scene in the morning, when the police and the detectives and the crime scene photographer have arrived, mm-hmm. see when the crime scene photographer is taking a photo of the body, does he say, hold her steady? <laughs> I didn't go. I didn't notice that line, but that would not in any way surprise no. me. Like the sort of the the non-plot driving dialogue in this is fucking crazy. I'm fairly certain that that's in there. I'm sure he says hold her steady as if she's going to get up and wander off. Yeah. Uh meet a couple of crucial characters at this point. Uh <laughs> Davis and Borges. Oh, Borges, yeah. yeah. He's oh, Borges, he... I apologize. Yeah. That's all right. Uh, yeah, he's amazing. I mean, presumably, because there's a lot of dream sequences, well, two dream sequences in this movie, and it's about, like, where things exist in the memory. And Fulci is obviously, like, a bit grandiose in his intentions, even if it doesn't necessarily come off across on screen. So presumably that's a reference to Jorge Luis Borges, the writer, who's, like, you know, this in- very important 20th century writer who dealt a lot with dreams and reflections and perceptions of self and... Uh, so you know, I think that's some that's some posturing from Lucia. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when it, when okay. it comes to what is essentially his like cynicism and hatred of youth personified as a police <laughs> officer. <laughs> um, I I separated these two in my notes by having Davis brackets glasses and Borges brackets <laughs> grizzled. I think grizzled is a decent way to describe Borges. Uh, what yeah. a weary. He'd rather be anywhere else. Yeah, he. I mean, he stuck around for a while. The, the actor only died last year, but he had previously mm. been in both Manhattan Baby and New York Ripper. So he's York like Ripper. a. Yeah. He was one of Fulci's American trilogy stalwarts. <laughs> Some serious Oscar gold going on here as Marge bemoans the loss of this bright young talent. Who, who she basically just kind of lumped in with the rest of them as being fucking worthless peons 10 minutes ago in this film. But, uh, <laughs> but it's pretty cop about here. We get a little bit more about Candace. And at this point, I did not have Candace pegged as being one of the protagonists. No, she's a surprise, <laughs> okay. a surprise lead. Yeah, I would say so. I feel like, uh, like, uh, I feel like uh, she gets kind of airlifted in at this point. Um, and then a lot of it is from her perspective. Do you know, Olga Carlatos here actually not doing bad work. Um, nope. Not the first time she's been with Fulci either, which is quite uncommon for female actresses, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, Katrina McCall. They get sick of that shit um, fast. <laughs> yeah. Of course, Mitch, the recipient of a massive, massive scalp in her eye. Yes. Obviously, you know, some of our audience might know her more from Purple Rain, where she played the mum. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Uh, but yes, her, not her, her contribution to uh, to Italian genre cinema is un- not unnoted. No, that's I, where it peaked for me. I was going to say, and I think of the two, that's the one that we need to be highlighting here. For, for, yeah, for us. Absolutely. <laughs> 
she gets a, she gets a call about uh susan's murder and i love this happens a couple of times here and it's the first time that i remember it happening she gets a call and it's like she turns around and she says it's susan she's dead and where you'd expect a dramatic sting it's just more flamboyant pop music yeah well it, it doesn't <laughs> it does a slow push but they fade in the disco from the next sequence so you get like the sort of the synth drum hits coming in over her like <laughs> contemplating mortality dealing with the idea of the death of someone she knows like all these big emotional moments and yet you've got emerson just fucking going mental in a genre he's not accustomed to but there's actually a lot of really weird editing decisions through the film that kind of break momentum and kind of pull you out of moments that have been i wouldn't say they've been carefully built up but they're certainly there um and then it's kind of undone by a baffling cut to sitting in a restaurant or something completely tangential to the main storyline and where we were a minute ago it's all about juxtapositions and the problem with them is sometimes they really don't fucking work the (laughs) (laughs) the director is a chap called vincenzo tomasi who also uh, sorry the editor is a chap called vincenzo tomasi who also edited cannibal holocaust Mm. so it's you know and the story is is by the guy who did cannibal holocaust so like like I said, this has a lot of like Italian horror royalty sort of associated with it. It's just Interesting. weird as fuck. <laughs> yeah. So we're immediately back for more I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say aerobics. No. <laughs> it's dancing. We're back for more dancing at this point. Uh Willie is justifiably aggrieved at the fact that everybody's quite blase about the fact that their pal's yeah. been murdered. He's furious. Mm. I do like it when he kind of like in a very accusatory way says she's dead but we can't stop dancing. <laughs> well, there's, but then Candice replies to that with a with an explanation as to why they can't stop dancing, which I felt was like, for, again, like uh, aiming well outside of his own league. Was Fulci referencing Paul and Pressburger's red shoes? <laughs> <laughs> the idea, the idea that this is so core to their being that they physically can't not dance. God, there's been some wild comparisons on this show lately, but that's right up there. <laughs> um, yeah, she, she gives this kind of borderline psychotic speech that basically amounts to the notion that competitive university dancing doesn't take compassionate leave. The show must yeah. go on. Yeah. F- fuck your emotions. Fuck your emotions. We are exactly. dancing. You're back on the fucking horse. <laughs> <laughs> Cry at the gentleman's club in the next scene. It's raining. They won't be able to tell. <laughs> Borges meets Dick at this point to sure. uh, discuss suspects <laughs> and motives. Yeah, he, I mean, he's incredibly aggressive uh, in, his que- in his line of questioning. I, uh, and it's not just in this scene. That's, that's kind of his, uh, I guess, his detecting process yeah. is to be as aggressively accusatory as possible to everybody. Well, I do wonder if that's, a, again, I, I wonder if he's taking a lift from something like Columbo, where he's like just kind of, like Columbo annoys people into confessing. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I wonder if this guy's just like if i'm a massive enough twat someone will eventually confess just to make me leave <laughs> and that, that, that actually happens that is pretty much how it goes down <laughs> um there's um there, there's an amazing uh kind of like line of inquiry that he pursues here when he's like oh is this competitive and the guy's like yeah yeah i mean it's pretty competitive man there's only three places and he's basically like well how many more people have been murdered because of this <laughs> Uh, but yeah, he's, he is. Um, he also helpfully deduces that the killer who killed Susan in the school needed access to the school, uh, which is a keen observation. And then uh, almost inevitably cutting to more dancing and more pop music. I forget if this is Flashdance or Fame that this is riffing on. Uh, Flashdance. It's Flashdance with the water. Yeah. 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 That's where we're at. Yeah. Yeah. I say. I say riffing on it. It's just. It's just that. 
isn't it? This is actually a great a great dance here. Like she's really going for it. You you feel it. You feel every moment of it. This is passion, Mitch. It's yeah. It's it's actually a, a pretty good scene, aside from the fact that it has the fart dispersal move in it. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say this is the one, isn't it? Yeah, I did slightly wish because you get like a few glimpses of the fact that there are tables around her as she's doing the dance, and ultimately, obviously, it reveals it's you know she's part of this gentleman's club, which will mm. later go on to be maybe part of some kind of prostitution ring which is alluded to but i did hope that at the end of this scene the first time i watched it that someone would come up and say excuse me madam you're going to have to leave where people are trying to leave no. <laughs> <laughs> like she just turned up and done this like holding on to your glasses as her ass bumps your table <laughs> fucking hell it's like not only has she turned up and started dancing in the middle of war she also turned the fucking sprinklers on <laughs> it's her smoke machine has set them off <laughs> at this point i wrote down what percentage of the runtime of this is protracted dance sequences uh, this question would go on to answer itself and the answer is a lot <laughs> <laughs> it's mostly mostly first act by the time we yeah. get to act three there's not a lot of dance anymore that's very true actually yeah no it does it, it gives over to it wanes. Uh, yeah it gives over to a lot more kind of plot considerations as it goes on yeah i think that that, that it's natural that the dancing would kind of peter out given that everyone who dies is a dancer There's you're kind of well in a way the great dancers and you're left with a i guess the the chaff <laughs> well there is a there's a there's a monologue later on not to get too far ahead of ourselves where one of the remaining girls is like no oh, but they were so much better than me and i'm still alive and i'm gonna get it because they're dead and that's not fair <laughs> Well, what do, we, what do you propose we do about that? <laughs> I mean, they're not fucking dancing anymore, so... Yeah. At this point, Janice, who I, th I believe we met briefly earlier, um, comes home to find uh, Willie in her house. He has creepily entered with a set of keys that she didn't know that he had. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she she kind of just accepts this as being fine uh, she's, really quickly. She's very chill about that. Yeah, yeah. More chill than I would be, I think. Yeah, Willie immediately rocketing into the, the top spot in the suspect list. What, by uh, breaking into someone's house unannounced and then lurking in the shadows instead of just saying hello when they come in? And, and then also disappearing like a fart in the wind. <laughs> like a fart dispersed in a gentleman's club. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, but not only does he disappear, but he leaves behind him her parakeet, canary, whatever it is, with a fucking, canary. with a with a murder needle through it. Which implies yeah. that the murderer had two of these and one of them could be dispensed with. Because, like, mm. all the other murders are done with one. He doesn't leave them in the victims, but this one is left behind. <laughs> also, it's worth noting that the bird's name is Titty, which, yeah. given that where all of the victims are stabbed, feels like it was a joke. Are you, <laughs> are you telling me that we're talking about a film that has characters called Willie, Dick and Titty? Yeah, well, the bird is called Titty. I wouldn't go so far as to call it a character. I think that's like calling uh, yeah. a gymnast a dancer. <laughs> oh, fuck off. <laughs> uh, yeah, but he does leave very abruptly. And at this point, yeah, like you say, uh, poor one out for Titty. Gone as quickly as she arrived. Stabbed yeah. with a death needle. Again, it feels, sure. it feels like a borrowed beat from the lizard in Profondo Rosso in Deep Red, where he finds the needle through the, through the lizard. Like, this whole thing feels like a weird jigsaw made up of bits, like, from other Gialli. Um, <laughs> I, feel, I feel like, to be fair, we're probably giving the bird murder too much airspace since Janice herself is killed in this scene. 
Yep, fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, at this point, I wrote down, does the killer bring his own theatrical spooky lighting? Yep, fair. There is some great backlighting and like tall shadows in this sequence. Sure. Oh, see, when you, when, when you pan around this flat, it feels like it's three different times of day. <laughs> <laughs> You just catch, you know, you just catch a day right at the exact perfect moment when every window you look out is a different shade of gold. <laughs> uh, it was kind of like that. It's quite. I, I didn't write down who the first AD or on this was, but well done for the scheduling on this. <laughs> <laughs> and go, 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 go. <laughs> um, at this point, uh, Candace has a nightmare that she is pursued by a needle brandishing and hitherto unidentified man. Yes, quite like this. It's pretty good, isn't it? And later on, we will see him on billboards, which is a, a lovely like foreshadow that these are all shot like commercials. This is the like the dreamy air of like a perfume commercial mm-hmm. or like mm-hmm. you know of the era. And so when we see him on a big billboard as an advertising thing, and Dick is like, "Well, you probably just saw him on an advert and he got into your subconscious," then we kind of buy that a little bit more because he felt like he was part of an advert when we see him. And yet later, <laughs> when we go to his apartment, he's a squalid well. pig. <laughs> <laughs> Real Lovelock, though, he always plays these kind of rough and ready man's man characters. Like, but yeah, but he's normally he's normally like a sort of a brackish, handsome fuck. Like, you look at something yeah. like uh, Perfect Place to Kill or Living Dead at Manchester Morgue, like, he's still, he's very handsome and he's a bit of a twat, but he can, yeah. he's got, like, the, he's, he can he can back it up. Whereas in this, this is much more of, like, a Giovanna Lombardo Radice kind of character, like oh. a, a sweaty, drunk loser. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I, I, I thought he was the coolest man ever in Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue. Oh, Park. my God, yeah, with that massive big leather hat. Who couldn't, who wouldn't <laughs> think he was cool? <laughs> It's like a leather dustbin lid. You were talking about um, Columbo beats earlier mm. on, Dan. Yeah, I think yeah, that, yeah. Um, Borges and Davis are a little bit guilty of this, although it's more of a third act move for Columbo rather than a 20 minute mark because they assemble yeah. all the suspects. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, all the suspects here. so far. Yes, yeah, mm. the ones, yeah, yeah. The, the ones that we know about. So uh, that includes uh, we've got I think I think Bob is there. I think Willie is there. Also Gloria, one of the other students, is there. Yeah. Also, yep. I believe uh, is it Bart? The character's name is Bart. Yeah, sounds right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this co- this conversation I think is amazing. Basically, we learn that they believe that the best dancers are being killed in descending order of ability, um, as far <laughs> as I can deduce. Like I said, leaving the chaff. At this point. Uh, Marge speculates that Candace is the killer, which feels counterintuitive for Candace's general purposes, given that she runs this team. Yeah, I mean, I guess she's talking about, like, access and who she knows, who she can, like, approach. But also, I think what they're doing here, and I'm assuming we're spoiling the fuck out of this later. Yes, absolutely. So I assume what they're doing is that whole thing, which uh, my, my favourite shit example of this is in Argento's The Card Player. <laughs> where they go mm, yeah so the police are having to play uh poker against the uh the killer and if the police lose he kills the victim uh is there any way he could be pre-recording the murders and the victims are already dead uh and someone says no that's not possible and they ask well how how is that not how do you know that that's not possible and they say 
don't worry about it. It's too complicated to explain. And it's not addressed again. And then later on, it turns out that that is exactly what was happening. And that that person was a fucking idiot and should not be, should not have their job. <laughs> and so they're kind of getting ahead of the audience's suspicions. And they're, yeah. they're like, they're neutering the suspicion by saying, oh, well, what if it's candy? Well, no, it's obviously not fucking candy. Don't be an idiot. And then they just move on. <laughs> she was in purple rain. <laughs> she was in purple rain. And after that murder in the shower, we cut to her at her house and her hair was wet. She can't be guilty. <laughs> I think it's really funny in this scene how little provocation Willie needs to grab anyone by the lapels. Yeah. <laughs> he's a handy man. He is, yeah. yeah he's, he's, he's a hot-headed lad. I've never been angry enough to grab anyone's lapels. I think it's probably a, a lot of that is just down to the, the lack of lapels in modern life. That, that may be true. You, you look that at what an Italian thought America was like in the 80s, and it's mm. chocker with lapels. So, like, uh, so Andy, I would say this is, this is less to do with uh, <laughs> your temperament and more to do with uh, sad, a sad decline in sartorial elegance over the years. <laughs> Things that work as handles in the world of fashion. <laughs> I think it's really funny at the end of this really high-intensity conversation that Borges' parting shot is basically that he says that if somebody was exclusively killing dancers, he'd basically be fine with it because he thought they were all dickheads. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, then have... I, I think someone's just killing dancers and then have my full sympathy. <laughs> he also calls it a school for sons of bitches. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, I'm not sure you're taking this seriously. He is. He is. I. I would. I would be willing to put money on him being the uh, the film world's least sympathetic police officer who doesn't actually break the law. <laughs> like you yeah. know, we, we can ignore our kaitels and our cages, but outside of those arenas, he's just a mean old twat. <laughs> <laughs> Cantankerous old bastard. Yeah. <laughs> Um, at this point, uh, another another kind of plot strand that I didn't see coming, which uh, was uh, Candice gets into a car and sees Nightmare Man on a billboard. Yeah, Nightmare Man. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And then what I would say is, within approximately ten minutes of the runtime of this film, she has found him and fucked him. Mm -hmm. Well, Dick Dick manages to like Dick is his own undoing. So Dick and Candice are in a are in, <laughs> in a relationship. Always the case. Always, is, always the case. Uh, <laughs> Dick and Candice are in a relationship and she has already like made light of the fact that she suspects he's fucking all the dancers like in an earlier scene and then when they see the billboard together and she like you know shits the bed or the car seat as it were in reaction he's like you probably just saw the fucking ad don't worry about it if you're, if you're so worried just phone the agent and find out where he lives cut to the next scene and she's already done that that was really easy was <laughs> yeah. yep, and, and and gotten into and gotten into his actual uh his 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 room yeah she uh she she very very lazily leans on the concierge in this yeah. like flea pit dive hotel and yeah, she's got to say much i think room is quite a generous thing to call it i, I was leaning more towards hovel Hovel, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. a, a, a skip, but they've put doors on the side of the skip so you can pull, like, pile the garbage up taller than the skip. Uh, yeah, the fanciness of his appearance on the billboard belies the squalor of his existence. Yeah, true. 
Sure. Um, the killer has started making telephone calls and leaving answer machine messages, which I have to say feels like Fulci trying to rerun what he did in New York Ripper and make it less fucking annoying. I, I, you know what? I fucking love the murder Donald Duck. Really? Ugh. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously, it's obviously, it's awful, but it kind <laughs> of it it just works so well because it's like if you're gonna take the piss out of the police with like you know Jack the Ripper letters or like aping phone calls, then make it the worst experience for them possible. Doing a, a fucking duck voice when you're phoning the police. <laughs> it's just salt in all the wounds. I think that like, he, he's not, the guy, the killer is, are they using voice disguising technology here? I think it's just, do, she's just doing a deep voice. Just, just, just doing a voice. <laughs> <laughs> There's like, an extended scene where they try to uh, figure out the voice, whether the like, they kind of break it down and they're trying to clean it up and they're trying to figure out exactly who we're dealing with here. But, it's all for naught because they get nowhere with it. Well, they they like, they kind of use this. They say, "Look at the oscillations uh, on the look at the patterns on the oscilloscope. The human voice is like a fingerprint. Everything's unique. Blah blah blah." Someone even says, "It might even be a lady." And again, everyone's like, "Fuck off! That's stupid." Um, <laughs> and then and then and then later, they bring Bob in and they play this not Bob voice at him, and they're like, "This is clearly you." <laughs> But this, but this again. This felt very much like Fulci just like dipping back into the golden greats of Giallo. Like mm. Bird with the Crystal Plumage has the pouring over the magnetic tape to identify the sounds in the background. Four Flies on Grey Velvet has them yep. like looking at the retinal scans on the background. Like Argento always used to say that like a lot of his inspirations for these stories would come from a like a story about a development in criminal technology. So like phenomena comes from them being like, oh, well, the life cycle of a fly will tell us how long a body's been there. So Fulci's just done like a super lazy version of that, where he's like, <laughs> when you look at a voice on a screen, it's wiggly. Presumably, it's <laughs> differently wiggly for different voices. So that's a thing. We'll make that a thing. But just for one scene, and we'll never address it again. It's like, yeah, I, th I thought my favourite thing was just getting like, it's like, oh, we're just going to put this to the experts who are going to use technology to remove his funny accent. <laughs> Yeah, we very briefly get a kind of um, this seeds are being planted of this flourishing romance between Candace and the man we now know to be George Webb. So we see them first on a rooftop and then on what appears to be a date. They kind of discuss their respective falls from grace. Yeah, yeah, this kind of starts, we start to learn here about Candace. She was on the fast track to massive success. She was looking, at, she was facing down the stars, Mitch. Mm -hmm. And then she was involved in an accident. I believe she was hit by a motor, motorcyclist. Yes. Am I right in saying? And uh, yeah, she was presumably injured enough that that uh, had to be put on pause and then was never returned to. And now this is what she kind of uses her lot in life is now teaching these dancers. Yeah, she says, I'm, I'm not a star. I, I make the stars now. I, yeah. I make the people that will go on stage. The whole thing is so that she can like slightly ham-fistedly say, you know, oh, that was my accident. That's where why I am where I am in life. Your life's obviously fucking garbage. I've seen your apartment. What was your accident? <laughs> uh, foreshadow. And he says, I mean, a bunch, bunch of fucking accidents. <laughs> just, I fucked up a lot. Yeah, fair one. Let's um, glaze over that. <laughs> Uh, next up, Bart is interviewed by uh, Borges because he believes that he is the closest match to the now digitally reconstructed or deconstructed uh, voice. 
Is this when uh, Borges slaps the living shit out of him? Yes, this yes. is the this is when he uh, he operates by the 2020 police handbook. <laughs> yes, uh-huh. I f- Ex- right, I'm not I'm not gonna lie. I'm just gonna throw my hands up here and I don't understand what the fuck was happening. Right. Well, so- I was I was especially confused because we have a violent cop who's not following proper procedure, and yet when the guy he's interviewing turns out to be a massive racist, he doesn't identify with him. Also true. Yeah. Like. Mm. Um, he has obviously taken it into his head that Bart is the killer. He starts trying to like beat a confession out of him, presumably, then orders him to be locked up. Uh, Bart, like you say, shows himself to be a massive racist. And then what I don't understand is that then, and this is probably purely because I'm very, very bad at this, but um, <laughs> Borges then has a conversation with, I believe, Davis and posits the various reasons why Bart got caught. Well, I think what we're meant to get is that Bart has sarcastically confessed to the murders. Yes. And they lock him up for being a bellend. <laughs> <laughs> he is an absolute bellend. But it does go back to what you said earlier, where Borges has annoyed a man so much that he will confess to multiple murders that he did not do. I think that I think that when you're being interviewed by police about um, a string of murders, I think sarcasm is a risky enterprise. <laughs> yeah, but what you have to remember is that he's not just a bellend; he's a fucking idiot. <laughs> Terrible combination. Um, Dick turns up at this point at Candace's place uh, for what he's hoping is going to be an amorous rendezvous. No such luck. Candace uh, kicks him to the curb because at this point she is very much kind of uh, coupled up with George. Yeah, with Ray. Like, yeah, she she's like she shoes him out the the, the doorway with like a sort of self projection damnation she's like yeah we're all just sluts to you and then she goes back to the guy she's cheating on her boyfriend with wow yeah that's exactly like, what there's happens. some some weird projection from lucio going on yeah uh-huh that's that's fair especially considering how blase she was about the notion of him shagging loads of students earlier on well yeah i like i wonder if she genuinely believed it or if that's a rumor that goes around and she was teasing him about the rumor and we later find out that it's accurate See, this is my problem, Dan. I take everything at face value. Subtext doesn't exist in my world. Well, in the previous scene, when they're interviewing Bart, and he's like, I fucking did it. I killed them all because I'm racist. (laughs) And then they're like, just go to the fucking cells, you idiot. When the cops are having a conversation afterwards, one of them says, oh, well, I remember a a case a little while ago where a guy killed his wife, and then he drew all the uh, attention to himself but in a weird way so that they would dismiss it because they would think that he was, like, mental and just wanted attention. So then they wouldn't think he did the murder. Yeah. And and I, and I wonder if that is being echoed in her being like, yeah, I'm just a massive slut. <laughs> and he's like, well, you've said it, so you're clearly not. <laughs> um, the next day, George sits in on a class, which under the circumstances feels quite reckless to me. <laughs> I kind of feel like security should be the watchword at this point. Now, we learn here that he has previous relationship with Gloria. Yeah, they were. Well, she later says that they were on an advert together, but uh, she demonstrates their prior involvement by making out with him under the world's, like, noisiest security camera. (laughs) She's like, why didn't you ever call me? And she kisses him, and then we get a slow push in on a camera that's whirring like a fucked bit of machinery. Straight after this, we get more Candace and George stuff. And uh, one of is this the self pity in Chinese meal? 
Yes. Uh, oh, but, but you've, you've, you've missed, you've missed a, a vital plot moment, which is that during that sequence, we cut to the atrium from the beginning, and Dick is with the cops, and they're watching on the monitors this, this infidelity, the kiss. Yes. Um, and that's when Dick says to Borges, do you believe in dreams, Lieutenant? And Borges, quite in contrary to his namesake, says, not a bit. Yeah. <laughs> And then he says, you should. Candy's dreamt of that man. And he's like, oh, well, yeah, that's very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've completely changed my position on that entire thing. Dick, but I mean, let's be honest. Then, there's no rational police officers <laughs> going to, when, when confronted with the information that she dreamt of this guy, ergo, he's the killer. Right? There's no rational police officers going to go, do you know what? You have turned me around, sir. I now believe that this man <laughs> is the killer, this dream figure. Listen, I know full well that you've watched a fuckload of Giallo, so you know that that's not the case, and that that's actually a <laughs> relatively common plot point. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're right, we can't blow past that, because that was fucking crucial, that was extremely reckless of me. Yeah, we've got um, <laughs> some more Candice and George action here. Uh, yeah, my favourite thing, one of my favourite things in the whole film here, uh, happens when uh, he, <laughs> the waiter identifies George as a murderer. Yeah. Well, they asked for a, like, is he the waiter? I thought he was just, like, a guy that turned up at the restaurant. Well, he's just a guy. I, I yeah, I don't that, think that... I thought it was, like, one of those guys that comes up to you when you're sitting at an, out, like, an outdoor restaurant and, right, right, like, right, right, pizza right, right. or someone. Right. One of those guys that comes up to you and asks you if you want to buy a watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, Watches, DVDs, Heather, all that stuff. But this guy will read your chopsticks. Yeah, he's got a, a thing of chopsticks. It's a problematic depiction of a generic Asian man. Sure. Uh, he shakes his he shakes his chopsticks. He offers to fortune tell, and then, in what I would consider to be not a business savvy move, delivers possibly the worst fortune you could deliver. <laughs> like no one in earshot is going to be. Oh, do me next. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, uh, he's not going to be like. Going to be like, what a joyful romp that was. Now do candy. Yeah. <laughs> I really like when it, when you see him again, when you get a <laughs> callback to it, and he's introduced with a boy. Oy, 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 oy. <laughs> they do like a sort of a, a creepy, like wide-angle lens push to the face, and he's just shaking his chopsticks. Yeah, um, like Bun Man. And uh, <laughs> when this, ha this this happens pretty quick after this, because they head home after that uh, evening, obviously ruined. Buzz kind of killed. <laughs> He literally, um, he literally says that. He's like, and, and he charged me two bucks to ruin our evening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but she gets a call. Uh, Candice gets a call from Phil, uh, Lucio Fulti himself. Yeah. Uh, saying that he has... Uh, who, who is Phil? Phil is the agent. agent. She's the agent that he co she contacted to find out where Ray Lovelock lived in a non-shown scene. In a no, non-shown scene. Is, she not, is he not her agent? I mean, fuck, I don't know. He's an agent. He's incre they're, in they're incredibly familiar with each other. Like He's like, love you, babe. Well, I, my guess is that she, as someone who works at the dance school, knows all the agents. Yeah, well... And, and that she was able... And that it was only because of her familiarity with Phil that she was able to get the hotel address of Ray Lovelock. And that when he phones up, he's like, oh, by the way, I should tell you that my client, Ray Lovelock may have fucked and killed uh, a girl. A young girl. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> God, you just connected all kinds of I should have, I should have, to be honest, it's on me, I should have mentioned that when you went looking for him as, a, as an unaccompanied woman in the back streets of New York. That really should have been what I led with. I know it's been a few days. Yeah, I'm sorry I let you just break into his fucking like weird 
pay-by-the-hour flea pit motel. But better late than never, hope you don't get stabbed. But as the third person in the film to profile George as a possible murderer, the first two being the Chinese man and herself, uh, she starts to cop onto this theory a little bit at this point. Yeah. She says that she needs some time to herself. Unwise, the minute she's by herself, she's chloroformed by Marge. No yeah, yeah, that's uh, a good, that's a good moment. Yeah, I agree. But it's it's a it's a it's a weird one because it's a very short lived red herring. Like you'd think that like maybe in a different version of the script, they'd fight. Marge would be like beaten off and then run away, and we'd spend at least five minutes thinking that Marge was probably the killer. But in this instance, Marge just can't go through with the murder and has a bit of a cry. <laughs> yeah, um, red, red, red herring introduced and dismissed in literally I think a two minute window. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Because she, she chloroforms her, can't kill her, and then Dick just appears, and she's like, oh, I chloroformed her, and then I was going to kill her like the killer did, but like the killer would, but uh, but I couldn't do it, and then she just cries, and I was e- like, all right, okay, uh, never mind. <laughs> Even now, on this umpteenth watch, I feel like that scene reads like Dick may have been mildly complicit in that attempt on Candice's <laughs> life. <laughs> Like yeah. the fact, the fact that he just turns up, the fact that he's super blasé about the attempted murder, and the fact that he's mostly like conciliatory to her—that she didn't manage. She's—he's like, oh, it's okay. You'll do better next time. Presumably, Marge's employment comes to a speedy end here. Well, except for the fact that if Dick doesn't say anything, and you know, is Dick a snitch, then Candice will never know that it was Marge because she got chloroformed. Well, wow. So maybe yeah. Marge can just turn up to dance practice the next day and like play it off legit <laughs> yeah <laughs> bold as fuck <laughs> this is wild this is this is like, like that's just, like that's like getting like, fired and coming back to work the next day <laughs> yeah, just as if nothing happened <laughs> <laughs> now nah, somebody else mate god there's an insane amount of conjecture flying around <laughs> <laughs> i mean that is really the the world of giallo is the world mm. of audience conjecture they uh, they they definitely leave a lot to interpretation. We rejoin Jill in the next scene, uh, babysitting for the wheelchair-bound Molly, who is oh, egging yeah. her on to uh, to dance. Yeah, the creepy little girl from House by the Cemetery. She's yeah, she's great with her camera and her <laughs> and her innate hatred of dancers and her love of insects. My my <laughs> my logic, my notes here say: Does she hate dancers because of their use of legs? Does she love insects because of how many legs they have? <laughs> <laughs> she's a complex complex woman like a, an insect could lose two legs in let's say a car crash and still kind of go about its day so yeah this is very true yeah she can she kind of eggs her on a dance then takes photos of her which is uh weird yep especially considering yeah. none of those photographs turn up when they look at the reel of those photos later yeah there's three of the most <laughs> yeah. bizarre photographs you've ever fucking seen in your life that are completely not linked in any way thematically which, to one another which leads me to think that molly was only <laughs> pretending to take those photographs to make jill feel better about herself and she's just like behind the camera making camera noises with her mouth <laughs> Click, <laughs> click. Oh, you're doing great. Lots of photographs of you. Click. <laughs> <laughs> and at the same time, keeping her uh, intense hatred of bipedal dancers to uh, to herself. Yeah, she only the only kind of dance she likes is a conga or that can can one where they all line up and they've got lots of legs. Or that uh, <laughs> that one where they, you sit in the ground and you do uh, oops upside your head. That one, you know. You go like, <laughs> Um, Later on, uh, Jill's having a moment of quiet contemplation and uh, the doorbell rings and chloroform comes a-calling. 
Yeah, but we get the oh it's you line ahead of time, which means that Jill recognizes the killer. Mm-hmm. That's crucial. And and another giallo standard as well, because we as the audience are never shown the face. Either it's an overshoulder, or they're obscured by shadow, or more often than not it's a POV, which was a, a, a standard kind of set up by Agento because he's a perv and he likes his arms being the killer's arms. Yes. Um <laughs> 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 I mean, the number of times that guy's throttled his own daughter is horrifying. But uh, <laughs> but but so you often have like that moment of recognition from the victim as a as a plot point to tell you that they are connected. Um, and so we didn't have that before in the uh, in the the Marge almost murder, which is mm-hmm. why I think she could probably have just gone to work the next day. But here <laughs> we know absolutely for certain that Jill and the murderer know each other. Yeah, yeah, that that much we know for sure. Um, <laughs> so she's she's murdered, and Dick is found at the scene and apprehended. And yeah, apprehended yeah, at the scene, understandably. Ju- just moments before she's murdered, she's on the phone to someone, and she's clearly arranging some kind of what did you call it a minute ago? An amorous rendezvous. An amorous rendezvous. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so I, his presence there is explained away. And that well, moment. but also there's a there's a whole thing where you know the nature of editing in film is that it's the compression of time, mm-hmm. and we have to we, we're instantly it's a, it's an interesting sort of like slightly meta narrative device because he assures us that the time between the previous scene and now is 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 a while, but the police have no reason to believe that it's not instantaneous, and sure, and yeah. as as viewers we don't have any indication as to which is which, which is which, a, yeah. Again, it's 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 not a particularly common trope, but Giallo's abusing uh, the audience perceptions of standard editing to hide narrative points. Um, my favourite example being the girl in the yellow pajamas, is is again a, like a, a normal thing within Giallo. Borges is pretty certain that they found their guy here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's been, he, he's he's been certain him. before. He just fucking hates everyone. <laughs> <laughs> This to me is the scene where he's at his most cantankerous because he goes through all this stuff with Dick and Dick tells him about all the girls at the school that he's been banging. And then um, the other guy, the professor guy, brings him in. He comes in all bustling and excited with those three slides. Um, <laughs> and when the first one comes up on the screen and it's a beetle, like it's all that man can do to not go, that's a beetle, you prick. <laughs> like, he is that close to just flipping the fuck out the only thing that keeps him sane is jamming hand after hand full of nuts into his mouth <laughs> he's eating like <laughs> dirty pistachios that someone else has previously shelled for him <laughs> uh yeah these um these kind of like davis comes storming in like you say he thinks he's got like a smoking gun as it turns out what you have i think is uh yeah a picture of a, a picture of a beetle an unassimilated picture of a child and a child on a torso some shot. And then, a, yeah, a, like a neck-down killer. Yeah. Yeah, n- n- nothing concrete. Nothing concrete there at all. Meanwhile, like I say, I think that I think that we get a kind of nudge that Bob might be the killer here. Because we see him doing some shadowy looking, and then he jump-scares Gloria. Mitch, I don't want to do this thing that I always do, but you're blown by something quite important here. Yeah, because, I've, got, I've, got, I've got something as well. <laughs> yeah, because Borges, Borges isn't going to be fooled by a photo of an Armani jacket, he sees something in there and assumes that the viewer has a lot of knowledge about the ways that jackets button up. <laughs> yeah. Because he reaches forward, takes out the slide, flips it round, puts it back in. Therefore, 
making assuring that he knows and we know that this jacket belongs to a woman right okay because yes, the buttons no, go one absolute, way around yeah there's absolutely no way in hell i would have put that together <laughs> can't see you don't know how buttons work <laughs> you don't know that there's a button gender divide yeah so so, so, so yeah i really i realize this now i i also um i don't appreciate having my button ignorance outward on a public forum but here we are <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so i think i didn't come here to be humiliated or at least not for that reason but yeah um bob turns up and kind of like say they have a kind of he has a kind of locker room encounter with gloria they talk for a sec uh she is chloroformed immediately on his departure Mm, as he shuffles off well the 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 other thing is that dick is admonished by this third photograph because uh borges says well i mean he always wears a suit and tie (laughs) i can't possibly (laughs) possibly i mean I, have you ever heard of a person putting on a different jacket? That's not a thing. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I've also never seen him in a suit of armour. <laughs> a space suit. Back to the drawing board. Fetch the folio. We have a lot of murders to dismiss him from. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, so we lose Gloria at this point. Uh, she she is she is killed in a manner to which we've become quite well accustomed. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Baby pen. Yep. And then in the next scene, Candace finds chloroform and a death needle in George's hotel room. Yes. Or quote, quote unquote finds. Yeah. She um, is in his hotel room with a needle and some chloroform. Also, um, oh, he owns a leather jacket, which immediately makes me suspicious of him. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. She's in the room with the death needle and the chloroform. And I would say, given, like, knowing what we come to know about this, uh, reacts to them with uh, quite a lot of, like, an interesting level of surprise, considering nobody's in the room with her at the time. She kind of, like, gasps and recoils from them. And George has realized what's happened, because he, after she leaves, she obviously leaves quite flustered. State of some distress, one might say. George realizes what's happened. He sees the dots that she's put together uh, mistakenly tries to find her um, to explain the situation. She tells Borges of this discovery and a picture is very much forming in our heads and Borges' head that George is your guy. Well, we've already... No, no, no. Ah, no, Mitch, you're wrong because at this moment, she drops the smoking gun. If you're paying attention, you will know that this is the moment that you should know that it's her. (laughs) Go on. She mentions the canary. The lion-headed pin. Remember, Mitch, let's go back to the canary incident. They, for some reason, the police covered up the fact that a canary was stabbed with a pin. Uh, so this, this is, <laughs> this goes back to like pre-Giallo kind of Christie era stuff, where the police would always hold back a detail. Mm-hmm. I remember, I can't, I don't, I don't know what fucking TV show it was, but it was absolutely inappropriate for the age that I was at. But it was like a, it was like a procedural murder mystery uh, when I was a kid, and they held back a detail from the press. And then, like later on, when they were talking to a, talking to someone, the person was like, "Blah blah 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 blah." And then the murderer put shaved off all her pubic hair and put it in her mouth. And I'm like seven, and <laughs> being like, "What the fuck is going on?" <laughs> and the police are like, "Gotcha, motherfucker." <laughs> so in this case, if word of this dead canary gets yeah. out, this department will be a laughing stock. Yeah, exactly. Well, they've well, they've got to keep it a secret, and then they can trick someone. It's like the whole, "I never told you it was a whatnot." 
Yeah. Um, in my defense, I do remember thinking at one point, I don't think that she should know that. But then I also just assumed that it would be me misreading the situation and it would be me projecting an expectation of a smoking gun. Or uh, cack-handed management of plot. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But at this point, um, Borges is now thinking almost exactly what Dan said there. Gotcha, motherfucker. He knows. <laughs> he knows. Yeah, absolutely. And Candace tells Borges to meet her at the academy to discuss it for some reason. Yep. <laughs> uh, they, they head over there. Uh, however, George is there first. And I think for someone who is innocent, uh, quite a lot of showmanship going on here. Well, but I don't think she knows she's guilty at this point. This is still, there's the whole bit at the beginning when they're talking about the accident where she's like, they said it took an even greater psychological toll than it did a physical one. And it <laughs> took a massive physical toll because my legs are shit now. So <laughs> They're just like twiglets. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we've, we've already set the scene for her like not knowing that she, like she doesn't know she's the murderer. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. and that's why when we have her like standing over the, the 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 corpse in the school and then like later seeing all the dancers on the screen and like being confronted by the vision of the dead bodies dancing and she's like freaking out and turning off all the TVs and all that kind of stuff and there's that fucking incredible uh, jib on contra zoom where it like mm-hmm. it lifts and contra zooms at the same time which is maybe one of the most impressive shots outside of that big crane thing in Tenebrae that I've seen in an Italian horror film and that's her that's all her like real like that push with the background moving away from her that's her realizing that she's the fucking killer right. that's okay. cinematography telling a story <laughs> very similar to uh the Be- there's a couple of moments in the beyond which yeah. do almost that exact same thing yeah using um, a contra zoom to represent realization yeah. the world coming into focus right because i have proven myself completely incapable of picking up on small visual cues or subtext i'm gonna hand it over to somebody else to explain the final reveal lest i embarrass myself any further well, she tells she like George turns up. He he pretty much knows the minute that this all dawns on her. Then she's she knows who George is. She knows George's past, and she tells him, "You robbed me of my hopes and ambitions." Yeah, she yeah, he- she she's left. She she is uh, she's been left lesser by his interaction mm. with her, and so her um it, like she is willing to sacrifice the hopes and ambitions of these other girls to be able to get revenge on him but it's ultimately a revenge suicide because the last mm. step in the plan is to hand him this needle which you know thank god he brought it with him because <laughs> he brings it from, the, from the apartment that could have gone wrong and then like you'd have to just cave yeah. a you'd have to just cave her head into something <laughs> at hand you just be like uh fuck it this will do fire extinguisher <laughs> bang uh, she yeah she just slowly like walks into the needle piercing her own heart and thus mm-hmm. framing him. Um, and then at the end, Borges turns up and is like in no way convinced by her amazing plan. Like, <laughs> But my favourite thing about that ending is that like he's in no way convinced, but I don't entirely put it past that character not to arrest Ray Lovelock anyway. Well, he does say, I mean, he's like, look, uh, she's she's obviously troubled. She's, uh, she's a killer. She's tried to frame you. But to be honest, if this goes anywhere near a judge, you're... You're pretty fucked. much got it present. yeah you're fucked mate no jury yeah. well yeah like no jury in the world would ever convict her and but then if i was him i'd be like well but you could say like you could stick up for me yeah or having you could a- give evidence so or- so column a the arresting officer being my character witness would probably help and column b why don't you try not being the arresting officer and not <laughs> arrest me <laughs> yeah. if you don't think i did it presumably you shouldn't arrest me <laughs> 
Um, I think that um, I think that it's weird that George kind of cops to the notion of being in prison for the rest of his life so quickly because he's basically just like, you know what? Maybe it's fair enough. I did hear it with that bag. Yeah, and I'm, and um, my and my apartment's really messy. Yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, where this finishes and where this ends is that uh, they do say that they know that he's innocent. They knew that. If not all along, then for a decent <laughs> whack of time, uh, because uh, the jacket in the photo that uh, that Molly took, like I say, has uh, has buttons on the lady side. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Unless uh, the frame was the other way around, or it was a man wearing a lady's jacket. These guys have never seen death walks in high heels. I <laughs> love. I love the fact that the notion of a man putting on, putting on a lady's jacket to uh, Mr. Anathema to them. Murder, <laughs> it's just like, absolutely dismissed out of hand. Like, it's not even considered. I think that's hilarious. And, I like uh, the idea of Borges knowing from minute one that it was Candice and then just reveling and being an absolute arsehole to everyone. Well, and letting her kill the students that he doesn't like, given that he said he would sympathise with the murderer killing students. Mm. Oh, In shit. the school for sons of bitches. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's your real story here. That's your false bottom. That's what's been going on this entire time. I've just had my Kobayashi ceramics moment with this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but as you mentioned earlier, Dan and Andy as well, I believe the other kind of the other kind of dead giveaway was that she knew non-public information about the murder weapon and the canary and the canary. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And with that, the curtain falls on Murder Rock. Not before we get another dance sequence. Oh, oh, Keith course. Emerson. Keith Emerson plays us out. Yeah, naturally. <laughs> I mean, I mean, who and what else at this point? Beautiful. <laughs> uh, he's the yeah, only. That... He's the only musician that exists in this world. Yeah. <laughs> Hope you like Keith Emerson because he's the only musician there is. <laughs> sure, it's strange that Keith Emerson makes all music now. <laughs> Unlike Keith Emerson's career, pretty much after this film. um but yeah we're pretty much done at that point andy the last in a line of watches of this for you what's your stance i I don't think it's anywhere near the best of fulci no but it is nowhere near the worst of fulci (laughs) the worst of fulci is bad um and this is fun it does get a little bit bogged down in police procedural stuff but it's still a fun watch and i'm glad that it's some, I'm glad that Dan picked it actually, um, and not even if only Mitch to get you to watch more Italian horror films. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. This is this is the first Fulci film that we've had. Um, really? In 100, yeah, in 106 episodes. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And you only good. recently watched The Beyond. I only saw The Beyond a year or two ago. Yeah. Oh, what a treat! So yeah, this is the, this is this is like um, my kind of my kind of ignorance has been co-opted as a gimmick. Like I'm just watching all these things for the first time, most, <laughs> like most of the time. Uh, and this was no exception. Like I say, uh, when you sent over the list, and this was kind of like very much the one that drew my eye the most. Pretty much anything that like kind of throws it. I was kind of like, I was primed for something that was maybe going to be a little bit more of a musical. From your <laughs> <school. Right. laughs> okay. So. I mean, it's as it's a musical as much as it is literally anything, <laughs> other <laughs> other than a mess. Other than a mess, it's a mess um, first and foremost. But yeah, I uh, I I thought this was really good fun. Um, I could see myself watching this again in the future. It is kind of like exactly my flavor of ridiculous. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's genuinely a delight. I think it's um. Because the thing is, like, there are some really fucking good giallos, but my favourites are always the like the quite grim and dark ones. Like, I'd say my favourite two are "What Have You Done to Solange" and "Death Laid an Egg," mm. both mm. of which are pretty fucking bleak. 
Yeah. <laughs> and they're not necessarily Absolutely. something you'd use to introduce someone to the genre. So aside from like the stylish like cinematography of Bava or the like the neat intricacies and complication of of like high tier Argento, I think the best you can do with a giallo is silly fun. And this is mm. definitely silly fun. Yeah, I definitely agree on that point for sure. For sure. Yeah, no, this this is a great pick, Dan. Thanks, thanks for uh, bringing it to the table. Oh, man. Well, listen, if you want to do any others off that list, I would love to. Dan, before we wrap up, what's going on with you? Um, I, Like all of us, my life is on hold while we work out where the world goes. I've got a bunch of jobs uh, like lined up to go as and when that's allowed, but nothing I can really talk about. Um, sure. Uh, for now, I'm I'm doing the Arrow podcast, uh, which is probably worth a listen if you like this. It's um, definitely worth a listen. 100%. And I'm on Twitter if you like hearing a, a bald special effects man get cross with the world. <laughs> uh, I'm at Thirteen Finger FX on Twitter and also on Instagram. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to do this with us. Uh, this oh, great. it's been a real pleasure. Thank you, guys. So our Arrow Video Podcast hosting set is complete. After Sam yeah. Trust, we had Dan Martin. What a good time. Yeah, I think we're coming to the end of our... Uh, well, we might have even finished off the Hex Media one as well. Yes, yeah, yeah, because I'm Sam, Laurie, Sarah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we're probably close to finishing off the Beyond the Gates one. <laughs> yeah, we need to, we've got a couple of people left in Beyond the Gates, but we're basically we're going to get everybody that ever worked on that film. <laughs> but massive thanks to dan martin for coming on and doing that that was that was amazing and uh i'm so glad you enjoyed mother rock i, I mean it, like you said yourself uh, this was one that you pushed a bit harder for just based on the kind of synopsis alone yeah uh-huh it really did sound like something that was going to take my boxes and it did uh yeah that was really fun and uh yeah great to, great to talk to dan great to finally kind of meet dan as well yeah absolutely and a peek behind the curtain uh, to the show, you do generally defer to me if it's a list of things that you don't know. So uh, it's actually refreshing to me, Mitch, to have you step up and say, I think this sounds brilliant. I would like to do this. So, yeah. good man, more of that, please. When they don't do that, it, could, like, uh, it doesn't come from a place of ignorance. It comes from a place like, oh, you'll know what the best fit is because you've seen them. But uh, yeah, for, <laughs> for some reason, I had this overwhelming urge to go with this one, and I think it worked out, right? I think it worked out fine. More to the point, what did you think? If you want to get in touch and let us know what you thought of the episode, or bring up pretty much anything we're pretty much open to talking all manner of shite and all manner of subjects these days you can do through all the usual channels <laughs> facebook and instagram are strong language violent scenes you can tweet us as well at strong violent pc and you can of course email strong language violent scenes at gmail.com yes of course and check out strongviolentpod.com where you can find as always the much discussed non-exhaustive list of podcast providers where you can listen to us uh, you will also find links to Public, and once the world is back in order, we will put some live stuff up there and we will come to your towns and we will hug you and sniff you and we will be allowed to be in your vicinity and that's just wonderful. That's something to look forward to. Yes, absolutely. It is going to be amazing. If you're listening to this on the day that this is coming out, hopefully you'll be joining us at 8 o'clock tonight for our Watch Along a Wishmaster. Feeling that though... We will, of course, be back on Monday with another mini-sode. We'll be doing all the usual stuff, what we've been watching, your feedback, 90 side quests, Mitch's pitches, the whole shebang. Got some cool stuff coming up. Hopefully you'll stick around. But we will be back tonight at 8 for the watch-along and this Monday with mini-sode 107. In the meantime, don't forget, it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chats. Goodbye. Bye.
You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.